Hello everybody and welcome to the Greatest Games podcast on the Blizzard with me Marcus Speller and Jonathan Wilson. Today with us we have James Copnell, presenter of Newsday on the BBC World Service and author of the book about the Sudans, A Poisonous Thorn in Our Hearts. James was previously the BBC's correspondent in the Sudans, also the Ivory Coast and Morocco. James, pleasure to have you on the pod. Delighted to be here. Today we go back to the first match of the 2002 World Cup, which finished France 0, Senegal 1. James, why have you chosen this game? Oh, I mean, first of all, just, you know, the drama. I mean, France, you know, world champions, European champions, kicking off the World Cup. Everyone was expecting a big win and they lost and Senegal won. And, you know, that was an amazing start to a World Cup. And it hinted maybe that African teams were finally going to kick on and become a major force and maybe it didn't quite happen but as a game as a drama as a spectacle it was extraordinary and then very personally uh, I had lived in Senegal and I covered that team pretty closely I was there you know during the qualifying Africa Cup of Nations that year and during the World Cup and I had many Senegalese friends among you know the players at the time good mates I suppose and so for a very personal reason it was a, an astonishing game but I think everyone around the world was Almost as astonished and delighted, probably as I was, other than in France. Yeah, uh, Jonathan, it was uh, it was quite the start to the tournament, and as a neutral watching a game like that, that's what you want, surely. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'd met James, I think, for the first time in in Mali early that mm-hmm. year, the Cup of Nations, and I, I sort of knew that Senegal team was a decent team, um, but you never quite know, um, and I think particularly with with African teams, there's always questions in the build up as to. Uh, you know, our financial list is going to take over. What's the preparation been like? There's always extra complications there. So, you know, they, they, they'd lost in the final on penalties to Cameroon and the Cup of Nations. They were clearly a really good side. Uh, I think in retrospect, I mean, it was my first Cup of Nations, but I think in retrospect, uh, in terms of the quality of the teams there, it was probably the best I've been to, uh, the nine I've done. The football wasn't that great because the pitches were really poor. So it was an incredibly low-scoring tournament. But I, I think that's almost entirely down to just how bad conditions were. But you look at how good that Nigeria team were that, that ended up coming third, the Senegal beat in the, in the semi-final, the Cameroon team who, who won it, plus the Senegal team. I, I'm not sure Africa's ever had three teams of quite that, that quality at the same time. Um, and then, yeah, playing the world champions. Um, so I, I guess similar to Cameroon beating Argentina in, in 1990 with the extra twist of it is against the former colonial power. Yeah, that was that was absolutely massive. I mean, the the build up in a way was dominated by that, and then afterwards, um, <laughs> that's what everyone could talk about. So I remember Musan Jai, who played on the right um, during the game, and he, this was after the games in the hotel. He was absolutely knackered. He can't get off his seat, but he hadn't eaten the pre-match, post-match meal because he was just too exhausted. He's like, you know, the cockle, thats the symbol of France, right? Everyone in Dakar's eating chicken. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he was happy. <laughs> and it, yes, the former colonial power thing was a massive part of it. And Senegal and France have a slightly you know, unusual relationship. It's the classic, there's bits of the classic former colonial power, former subject relationship and resentment and so on. But Senegal also had a very, very close relationship with France. So there were parts of Senegal in the colonial era where if you were born in Dakar or San Rico, other places, you were a citizen of France as you weren't elsewhere in, in, in Francophone West Africa. And so the Senegalese were often seen by the rest of Francophone West Africa as 
very close to France, almost little Frenchmen in West Africa. And the Senegalese sometimes liked that description, sometimes didn't. So it's a sort of real kind of love-hate thing. Mm-hmm. But to be the former colonial power at the start of the World Cup, the reigning, you know, best team in the best team in the world in front of the entire world was yeah, pretty sweet for everyone, apart from those chickens. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean I think I think so. I think that point about the relationship is 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 a really interesting one because there's an assumption it will be antagonistic. And the impression I got was it it's it's not really as antagonistic as you as you may think. So I think of this of this squad, uh, 21 were playing in France at the time. A lot of them were actually qualified to play for France. They'd grown up in France. Um, there was an interview Salif Jao did in The Independent with our friend Jack Book, uh, I think 2018, where he said in 98, he was going around watching France, supporting France. Yeah. So and, and so saying if, if Senegal hadn't been there, he'd have wanted France to win. So there's not quite the the bitterness you you might expect. It's a much more nuanced relationship than yeah, than definitely. And he wasn't the only one. Muslim Jai said it, yeah, exactly the same thing. Um, sporting France last time around, and lots of them, as you say, were born in France. You know, some of them discovered Senegal almost for the first time when they were called over for the national team. So they were people who had Senegalese parents but grew up in France. Maybe they'd been on holiday when they were 11 or something. And then they came back and they were kind of, you know, sometimes they were a bit like, whoa, what is this? This is not what I'm used to, Um, which is not to say they didn't feel pretty Senegalese or represented their country as much as they could. But some of them had a very kind of French cultural frame of reference. And so, yeah, among the players, definitely quite a few didn't have any will towards France at all, perhaps among the Senegalese population, a bit more, you know, the ones who hadn't had the advantage of a French education or growing up there, a touch more hostility. But yeah, a very, like you say, a nuanced sort of relationship. And then on the other side, you had Patrick Vieira, of course, who was born in Dakar, who in another world could have been playing for Senegal, but here he was playing for France. So he must have had slightly mixed feelings as well. So yeah, of course, distort the France had lost, but somehow an element of pride, presumably, that mm-hmm. the other part of his identity and other part of his identity had done so well. Uh, James, the, the, of course, the Senegalese manager, or the manager of Senegal, rather, was, was Bruno Metsu, Frenchman, of course, appointed mm-hmm. in, uh, in um, 2000. Um, and he, one or two of the Senegal players said, you know, it was, it's important to... The ones who, as you say, are familiar with France, but also familiar with with Senegal, obviously very different countries, different cultures, different footballing cultures as well. And they spoke about the um, the, the, some European managers don't sometimes get the more African footballing culture, the 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 expression of the players and all all that kind of stuff. Am I right saying he he quite a relaxed style of management and he seemed to get the tone quite right in this yeah that was his 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 moment of genius i think where his uh, the thing that really made it work was he was just incredibly laid back uh, and he wanted the players to be relaxed and laid back and he knew that if he just told alleged you've you know i'm going to find you for not turning up on time to training or whatever <laughs> then things weren't going to go well um but if you just <laughs> let him I'm, I'm taking a random example here let's say um, <laughs> But, you know, if, if you let Juve go uh, out to nightclubs two days before a big game, uh, somehow it worked. At least well, there's an interesting debate here because basically they were incredibly relaxed. And I'll give you a couple of examples in a second. 
and it worked up until they went out to Turkey. And then there were people in the camp saying, maybe we're a bit too relaxed. Maybe going out to nightclubs two days before the big game wasn't the best idea. But they went further than any Senegalese team in history, so it's difficult really to, to question it. But yeah, there's a sense of the players were encouraged to, I guess, take responsibility. It wasn't a sort of schoolmaster cracking down them. He was incredibly sort of personally warm, I think, Metsu, which a lot of people uh, appreciate. But to give you a really personal example, um, I was a young journalist, just got a year out of university or something like that, and I'd lived in Senegal a bit, and um, I knew they were going to qualify for the World Cup, and they were going to play some pre-tournament friendlies late the year before, like November or something, in South Korea. And I flew out there and um, paid my own way, thinking I can do a few articles, cover the cost of the trip, you know, help to build up my build up my profile and so on. And so they played a game in I forget where Debut or somewhere like that, and I was in the hotel afterwards, sort of doing a couple of interviews. I didn't actually have anywhere to stay. I was just going to try and find somewhere cheap nearby. And Metsu found out about this, and I knew him a little bit, obviously not you know that well. And he said, "I've got a couple of beds in my room. No one else in there. Comes, come and stay in my room if you want." So I spent the night in separate beds. I'll stress <laughs> with, with Bruno Metsu. Um, and I was just some young journalist. And there's a sort of sense of, now, can you imagine? I mean, Southgate, maybe, but can you imagine yeah. Capello inviting a sort of 25-year-old English journalist who hasn't got much yeah. money to share his twin bed? I, I could imagine Sven doing it, but... Uh, <laughs> um, but different just... things, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so Metsu had this sense of, I'm not going to crack down on you. I'm going to be really open. And obviously, us journalists loved it because you could turn up to the hotel at you know, any time of day or night almost. And they tried to tighten up a little bit during the World Cup, but it didn't particularly work. So you could be, as I met other journalists at the time were, and perhaps Jonathan as well, you know, in the in the sort of corridors of the hotel with the guys playing djembe drums, you know, the day before a game at sort of half 10 after their dinner or whatever, just talking and drinking tea and, and all that sort of stuff. And it wouldn't probably work for a lot of teams. It, you know, a, a team like, let's say, England, has so much media pressure and people swarming on them. And actually the number of people interested in swarming onto the Senegalese team site at that time wasn't that high because no one really knew who they were before the game against France through these guys. And perhaps after the game against France, they had to tighten it up a little. But that sort of sense of, we just want people to enjoy themselves and we're gonna be laid back and relaxed. I think probably relax the players. Mm-hmm. And then allied to that, and we'll probably get into that a bit later, there was a sense of, tactical sophistication and, and sort of discipline that they had that people perhaps wrongly or wrongly don't often associate with African people. But it wasn't just a bunch of laid-back guys mm-hmm. heading out to party and doing whatever they pleased. They played, they were very good footballers who played in an extremely disciplined and, and, and tactical way. But yeah, Metsu's, uh, Metsu's approach was a big part of that. And I still remember rereading uh, a couple of pieces before this, like a bit from a press conference where a Korean journalist asked Metsu to explain the length of his hair in relation to the success of his team. <laughs> so the madness of a World Cup. Like, what? How are you meant to possibly answer that? Uh, I don't. I don't even recall what he said, but um, he was a pretty laid back guy. So he just, yeah, I'd imagine he gave it a go. <laughs> well, Chibi yeah. said Metsu had quite long curly hair. Yeah. He had sort of 
very long hair. Yeah, exactly. You know, it wasn't a buzz cut. Um, yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> so it was a compliment, I guess we'll say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, yeah. the example of that relaxation, I remember. I you might have been there that night, actually. I'm not sure. But I was just in a bar in Bamako during the Cup of Nations in 2002. Mm. And I, I was a load of South African journalists there and drinking quite heavily. And significantly after midnight, a, you know, a bloke turns up with a, quite a heavy French accent and says in English, do you mind if, if me and my girlfriend join you? I just want to practice my English. We're like, yeah, of course. And yeah, he buys his round and he's, he's not drinking beer. It should be said he's drinking that sort of pink fruit syrup thing that mm. is very popular in West Africa. And uh, yeah, well, it's not alcoholic, whatever it was. I'm, I'm yeah, not yeah. Yeah. And then probably about 4, 4.30 a.m., he, he, he sort of stands up and goes, oh, that's been lovely. Thank you very much. Uh, I better go. I've got training in the morning. Well, that, who are you? And it was Calvin Fadiga. <laughs> and I just, yeah, I hadn't recognized him because he was, you know, he was, yeah. I, I think he was wearing a suit jacket and a t shirt. Mm-hmm. And you, what, it just never occurred to me he might be a footballer. Cause why, why would a footballer <laughs> join us at 1 a.m.? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but Jonathan, that um, Africa Cup of Nations that you mentioned there in 2000. Uh, Senegal, it was the first time they'd reached the final in their history. 2002, yeah. Uh, 2000, uh, yeah, sorry, uh, forgive me. And uh, uh, what did you think of the side then? So you, you got a bit of a, you, you saw them then, because going into the World Cup, I think they were the lowest ranked side at the tournament, or out of all the 32 nations. Um, but clearly they'd done well in, um, in, in the African Cup of Nations that year and got a very warm reception when they went home back to Senegal. Yeah, I mean, it was, to be honest, it was hard to assess them just because the, the pitches were so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so the football in that tournament was not good football. The, the event was amazing. I had a fantastic time there. Yeah, Mali was an incredibly welcoming, interesting place. Mm-hmm. Um, the access to teams was great. I mean, you know, again, talking about the relaxation, uh, I think there was, because there was two groups in Bamako, so there was eight teams in Bamako, and seven of the teams were in the Lamitie Hotel, which is this sort of concrete monstrosity built by the Soviets in the centre of town. And Senegal were the only ones who weren't, who were in this sort of quite pretty hotel and a nice garden. So I mean, you could grab players wherever, but going to the Senegal hotel was a bit nicer because you could sit in this nice garden rather than in this sort of quite soulless Soviet-style hotel. Um, but I, it had become apparent, I mean, certainly that game against Nigeria in the semi-final, it was apparent that, yeah, this is actually a properly good team. And the thing that was striking then, if you look at the goals they scored in that tournament, they only scored six goals in the tournament because, as I say, a very low-scoring tournament. But of those six, four of them came after the 80th minute. So they were physically a very fit team. I think a very well-organized team as well. But to be honest, I think it was only in retrospect I sort of really appreciated how good they'd been. I was a bit sort of unconvinced by everybody just because of the conditions. Mm. Okay, chaps. Well, let's go and take a quick break. And then after that, we will talk about the match itself. Back in a moment, everybody. Welcome back to the greatest games on the blizzard. Um, right then, gentlemen, so, so the match itself, opening game of the World Cup, uh, of course, as I mentioned uh, in the first half, Senegal, lowest ranked side going into the competition. Uh, France, of course, the champions, uh, the world champions and European champions. I mean, you could argue that one may argue that they were even better in uh, in 2000 than they were in 1998. Uh, put all that together, James, and the fact that five days before... Um, 
that game. There was uh, a, a controversial incident where some of the players went into a jewellery shop and Diofa dared Fadiger to steal a necklace, um, which he then produced on the team bus sometime later and the South Korean police would come in and, and question this. You put all that together and it would usually, if you crunch the numbers, suggest, would suggest a very comfortable France win, James. Yeah, it really would. Um, I think on that uh, incident just before the, before the tournament started, mm. I think everyone was a bit shocked. It was Fadila. I mean, Jonathan, you're talking about, you, you know, your chat with him. He was a really thoughtful guy, I think. Um, he did speak pretty good English for someone who is his you know, second language. Um, he... he well, he learned from the best, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, and he would not be the person. He was a joker. He did enjoy having fun, but he would not be the person you would imagine getting involved in that sort of thing. And it was all sorted out. There were charges. The shop, I think, gave him a little uh, other piece of commemorative good luck jewelry before the game. But it really cast a pile over it. And there were, were people in Senegal who were just utterly friends of mine, you know, distraught because this was Senegal making its name or projecting its name around the world. Lots of people you know where Senegal was, much about Senegal. Here they are in the headlines to play the opening game and they've got this scandal to deal with. So that was a really um, difficult way to begin the tournament. And then you get to the game and as you say, everything's against Senegal. And I think Trezeguet had been the top scorer in Italy and Henri had been the top scorer in France. And Senegal had up front Elad Juf, who was very talented, but I think he'd scored 10 goals the previous season at last. He was not a prolific goal scorer. He had been in qualifying. Uh, he didn't score a goal in this, in this World Cup. But, um, and you're thinking they're going to get annihilated. And they didn't. And Juf was absolutely magnificent. And my predominant memory of him in that game is him being caught offside. It felt like about 78 times. <laughs> <laughs> it can't have been quite as many as that. And I can't, mm. haven't been able to confirm that on the highlights package because you know, they tend to show people getting caught offside. But he just scared the hell out of the French defenders. They were constantly nervous. I think Le Berth wasn't the quickest by that stage. And if you look at the goal, um, Omar Daff wins the ball back and they get the ball very quickly to Juve and he just skips past the bird who just doesn't have the pace or the energy to keep up with him. And then it's a bit of a scramble and bounces off our pairs and Abu job sort of hooks it in. It wasn't the prettiest goal, but the pattern of that French defensive line not really being able to cope with Juve and to a lesser extent Fadiga um, have been set, I think. And France had a you know, couple of chances. They hit the post and they um early on on reading the bar as well but I, my dominant emotion i'm interested to hear what jonathan thinks but being in the stadium and and, and frankly although I'm, I'm a francophile i was actually willing senegal to win and <laughs> screaming quite loudly when they scored which wasn't the most professional thing to do in the press, press <laughs> box, but obviously forgive me um was that actually they weren't in that much danger that it was a sort of not a particularly threatening performance by france um they changed their formation, I think, just before the tournament. I think they'd been largely in, don't make correct me, but they were largely in a sort of 4-4-2 in the Nations Cup. And then they went into a 4-5-1 just before, the, before this tournament. So they had three pretty tough defensive midfielders, Pat Bubajop, Salif Jal, Aliou Sissi, um, Fadiger on the left, who's the most creative of the midfielders. And then for the game against France, they played Moussa Jai on the right, who was very physical and great runner, very strong. 
but not incredibly creative. Later on in the tournament, they play Henri Camara up there, and he was much more of a goal threat. But they just obviously planned to nullify France uh, and then hit them on the break. And that's where, you know, Fadiga's through balls and due to pace um, really came in, into play. But they were very, very disciplined. Tony Silva, who hadn't played regularly at all, had a fantastic game in goal. And it was a shock. It was a surprise. Obviously, the weaker team won. But I don't think it was, I don't think you could say they didn't deserve it. I think over the course of the game, they, they, they absolutely did. Yeah, I know. I, I, would, I would agree with that. I think, yeah, there's that, the the uh, Trezeguet chance early on, wasn't there? Yeah, on recently, could have changed it all, maybe. Yeah. And that was where you thought, oh, yeah, this is this is happening as we expect. But then there's this sort of sense of, well, hang on, they're not, they're not breaking through them. And I think that use of Arunjai on the right to, to block in Lizarazu, mm. that really affected France because Turam obviously doesn't get forward as much on the other side. And so they, they became, I think, very sort of predictable. There was a lot of passing in front of that, that line of three holding midfielders. Uh, so France was playing sort of a 4 2 3 1 with Henri coming off the left. And he didn't really get into the game in the way that he might have done. Uh, there was no space there for him to use his pace to attack. Trezeguet similarly you know, couldn't get be- behind the Senegalese back line. Uh, and then, you know, we mentioned France hitting Woodward twice. Well, Fadiga also hits the, yeah. the bar yeah, yeah, yeah. with the score at 1-0, which is, I mean, what, less than a minute before before Henri hits the bar. Mm. Um, so, yes, it, it, yeah, it, it could easily have been 2-1 to France, but equally it could have been 2-0 to Senegal. And, yeah, there, there was a sense of France just sort of running out of steam really early. And it was only, I think, sort of in the weeks that followed, we realised... That things have gone pretty badly wrong in the French camp. Yeah, you know, in, in the classic French way. If they're not winning the tournament, they're deconstructing themselves uh, <laughs> you know, magnificently. Um, and it wasn't quite 2010, but it, it wasn't far off. And of course, yeah, they go on to to well, draw against Uruguay when Henri sent off, and Henri for various reasons. I mean, there's all kinds of rumours about that. But get Philippe Claire on a night out, and he'll he'll tell you what was actually going on. But we can't really talk about that now. <laughs> Uh, and why Henri was in, in you know, so despairing of the rest of the squad. And then they get beat by Denmark in the final game. And, and, and so, yeah, go out in the group stage, which is world champions, as European champions, mm-hmm. was the humiliation for them. Um, but obviously in this game, we didn't know that. And perhaps if they'd won this game, it wouldn't have happened. But you're right. I think once Senegal had scored, there was a sense of France were being held at arm's length. And it, it wasn't sort of a siege of kind of hundreds of shots in the last 10 minutes. It was, it was actually relatively comfortable. Yeah. I think you probably should say as well they were missing Zidane. I mean, I think that was a big factor, mm. wasn't it? Um, had they had Zidane, you know, it might well have been, it might well have been different. But you know, it wasn't. And I think um, the way Senegal went on from that tournament showed that they were, you know, they were a pretty good team going behind against Denmark, and then they scored. I, I thought one of the goals of the, the tournament that that sort of eighty meter you know, counter attack that Salif Jao finished off, sort of four or five players involved and back heels and first time passes and so on. Um, and then drawing three through the Uruguay and, and, and beating Sweden. Um, yeah, they were a good team who were able to adapt to different circumstances, play play their way different. There, there was a line at the tournament, I think it was probably Simon Cooper who wrote that they were a team of sort of, along the lines of jobbing League One professionals, not much more than that. And I thought that was probably a little bit unfair. I think none of them were sort of superstars. People had hopes for Duf, and it, it obviously didn't quite happen that way. But he was a very talented player, um, if not a global superstar. You, you got on quite well with Duf, didn't you? Yeah, I did. He was 
you know, if, if you were to write down a list of, if somebody really knew him, write down a list of the not great things he'd done, I suspect it would be quite a long list. Um, people he'd annoyed along the way. And yet everybody loved him. He's just, there's something very endearing about him. Uh, big smile. He, I think he wanted to be loved by everyone from journalists to, you know, the entire Senegalese nation. Um, and he had a captivating way about him, but also very, um, you know, he, he usually would, he taught himself to t- talk in sort of very boring cliches. There's loads of footballers, particularly at the time, did, I think, didn't they? That he didn't want to say anything too sort of controversial, but he couldn't really help himself. So the <laughs> one seems like, I've got to try the exact way. It was something like, on va faire chier tout le monde et make everyone shit themselves, literal translation. Uh, <laughs> it's a little politer in French. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he, he was just kind of, could be. Hang on, doesn't that quote go on and, and fuck the entire brothel? Isn't that the end of that quote? Oh, well, that is the one. I didn't know if I could yeah. say it. But yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Partout, which is fuck the brothel everywhere, literally. It's not as rude as that in French, really, but the bordel is like chaos. It's, you know, yeah. so it's basically, you know, we're going to annoy everyone and create chaos. Uh-huh. But it's the sort of thing that if you're you know, your media training manager would put in their <laughs> hands at that point. And yeah. you sort of had to love that for him because he, uh, yeah, he just would do it with this big smile. And um, even the people who were annoyed with him would somehow uh, end up end up loving him, I think. You know, I mean, my, my sort of, I mean, very, yeah, very similar sort of, uh, you obviously knew him far better than I did, but my, my, my memory that you know, fits exactly with that, that uh, description of him was we were, were you in egypt in 2006 mm. so did you go out to was it ishmaelia that place on the red sea coast where senegal was no, i don't think i did it was a nightmare to get to it took forever to get there and we got there late because it just it was much further than anybody it's or much harder to get to than anybody appreciated so i don't know four of us eventually get there having sort of driven like two and a half hours in a cab and we get there and we, we, we yeah but we agreed to meet them before training and training had begun but there was sort of, oh, you can probably grab them after training. So Ferdinand Colley said, yeah, no, no worries, I'll talk to you, fine. And then we got Juff, and he was in a really bad mood. Something obviously happened in training to annoy him. And he hadn't showered or anything, so he was still you know, dripping with sweat in this bar in this training complex. And uh, he, he clearly didn't want to be there. And he was giving these monosyllabic, very dull answers. And eventually somebody said, oh, no, come on, we know you're a good talker. Just say something and you can go. You don't have to say it. <laughs> say something interesting now. And you can go. And he went, okay, um, the wrong African teams have got to the World Cup. It's going to be an embarrassment for the continent. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Amazing. What, what's his background, James? You know, when you talk about this this character who's rubs people up the wrong way and uh, but yet he's very likable and quite charismatic. What what's what are sort of the the the, 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 the talking points of his story then that's gone into creating him? I mean, I think he grew up in, you know, relatively tough circumstances in the north of uh, north of Senegal. He played in this thing called the Navitan, which is like a seasonal tournament, um, you know, related to the harvest season, which sounds very sort of uh, rural, but it's not really. It's kind of traditional Senegal, and it's like neighbourhood football. My neighbourhood has a team, your neighbourhood has a team, best guys come together. It's intensely sort of competitive. And he kind of made his, his name in that, I think. Um, 
And he, yeah, there's probably the element of the difficult background, not having that much as a kid. He was just desperate to be a star, I think, mm-hmm. probably. Um, and, you know, the wealth and adulation that, that went with that. And luckily for him, he had a lot of talent. So, it got, you know, he got it pretty far. It maybe didn't get him as far as he, he would have liked, but it took him an awful long way from, from where he started. But I don't think you can entirely explain everything by background and circumstances. Mm-hmm. People grew up in similar circumstances. He's just something of a one-off, I think. Blend of charisma and neediness and sure. talent. Um, yeah, because he did give you know those French defenders the runaround. There's no doubt about it. Um, and in qualifying, he's the major reason Senegal got to the World Cup in the first place. He had back-to-back hat tricks, uh, eight goals in five games at one point. He goal against Morocco. They just simply wouldn't have been at the World Cup, which they'd never looked like getting to previously. Um, had it not been for him. And although in a lot of ways Senegal didn't properly capitalise on uh, 2002, I think you could probably argue that they're, they are a bigger, better footballing country now because of it, just because, mm-hmm. you know, agents and recruiters and others pay attention to Senegal and you know, there are more football academies now, more, you know, conveyor belt of people going to France and other places and there's a sort of greater depth of talent that they can call upon. Um, so the after 2002 period could have been more successful, but I think it still laid the foundations for a, a much stronger footballing, footballing country and Duke was really at the heart of it. Yeah. Um, Jonathan, we've mentioned a few players who obviously Beat, were in the side who beat France that day. Uh, one we should mention is Aliou Cisse, uh, the current Senegal manager, of course. He was excellent at the back, the captain of the side. And and that commanding and calm presence was was rather important. Yeah, and a great organiser. I mean, you know, we, we talked about those three holding midfielders. So he was the the, 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 you know, the central one running slightly deeper than uh, than Jop. And uh, remind me, who was the other one? Jato. 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 Sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, and I th- yeah, I think since he's become a manager, you see, you know, his intelligence and his game intelligence. You know, he he was incredibly impressive. I thought in in Egypt uh, in what two thousand and nineteen mm-hmm. when when uh, Senegal obviously got you got to the final again, came so close, um, and he you know he, he he's just he's just smart. He's just one of those people who gets it. And he gets it both from a footballing point of view of of um, how to organise a team, but also he knows what to say in public. He knows the right things to to do to to calm situations or to inflame situations if they need inflaming. Um, he's he's just you know really really smart guy. Uh, and hopefully, uh, as and when he leaves Senegal, he will get his chance in Europe, which has always been a, a huge problem for for African manage- managers. Mm. Yeah, and James also in um, this this Senegal side. You know, you had um, Papa Bouba Diop, of course, who would go on to play in the, in the Premier League, and he he got the goal. Um, how important was he to this Senegal side? He was extremely important. Uh, I thought he was a ex- really really good player. He's so big, massive guy, but he had great feet. Um, that's a cliche, isn't it? Good feet for a big guy. <laughs> Sorry, but it was, but it was true. But it was true. What can I do? What can I do? Uh, so you know, if you look at that midfield, I used to say, spent a lot of his career at centre half, and he became a pretty good organising defensive midfielder. But he wasn't particularly 
good with the ball at speed. And Salif Jal wasn't bad, but Bubajok was definitely the one who could who could play the most. And also he would get forward and he would score goals. So he had three in the World Cup. Um, again, Duke didn't, didn't score. Ari Kamara got a couple um, in Sweden. I didn't score. But the main goal threat was this young, very quiet, very shy, but absolutely massive, very, very skillful central midfielder, Bubajok. And I think everybody loved him. Um, and he was someone I thought who might have had a slightly bigger career than than he did in a way. I think um, perhaps there were periods where that sort of immense size would have been more of an advantage um, than in the period in which he played. I'm not sure. Or maybe he just wasn't quite as good as I thought he, he could be. But, but he always, I think, played very well for his... He always came up big for... Senegal when it when it mattered and you know none bigger than scoring the goal against France in the only game of the World Cup. Well, I, th- I mean, I think there is an argument that, it, and it's almost it feels almost like flippant to say it, but uh, you know when he died, I, I you know I wrote a piece saying this that that moment that goal to a global audience mm. is probably the most famous moment in Senegal's history. Now I'm not yeah. suggesting it's the most important moment because obviously there's huge numbers of political things going you know cultural things going back centuries. But in terms of a thing that happens that people all around the world were watching and remember, mm-hmm. that goal, it must be the, the most famous moment in Senegal's history, which is an astonishing power and responsibility that footballers have. Yeah. yeah. Also, we've got to talk about the dance afterwards because it was, yeah. it's sort of a mix of, I think, Morris dancing and pelvic thrusts, if you can imagine <laughs> that, coordinated, uh, eight or nine of them there. Uh, yeah, Booba Jock, take your shirt off, didn't he? Chuck it down. Uh, yeah, so that went around the world as well, that not it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, was, it's, it is lovely sort of looking back on the Senegal side because, I mean, they were really rank outsiders going into the tournament. And, and it's true, they put their country on the map, um, it, it's certainly in a footballing sense. Uh, and they would go on you know, to the to the quarterfinals, you know, they, they drew with Denmark, Uruguay, beat Sweden with a golden goal. Um, and we talked about uh, Metsu's relaxed approach and, and the relaxed approach in the camp, but according to the article in The Independent written by um, Jack Pitbrook, the, the president of Senegal was unhappy about all the openness and the good times, if you like, that were happening in the, the camp. And um, he sent a special envoy to the team base to um, tighten things up, shall we say. Um, from this approach and the, the, the players were apparently confined to their rooms on their own for large parts of the day and certainly in this piece um, Salaf Jiao says that this resulted in them being emotionally drained ahead of the quarterfinal and the good feeling had kind of been sapped from them James I mean did, did you did you notice this did you did you sort of witness this I didn't know about the intervention of the president at the time I mean that was that was fascinating uh, mm-hmm. reading about that a couple of years ago and um, yeah, there was a sense of, a slight sense, I think, of increasing tension um, as the expectations grew. You know, they got the whole way to the quarterfinal. And if you're an African team, you're going to, in that situation, you're going to be constantly hearing, are oh, you going to become the greatest team ever, first African team to make the semi final? Um, and then obviously, you know, can we win it? Could we? So that sort of level of, I think, pressure was mounting. And they, there was an attempt probably to make, this camp a little more like a traditional uh, football team, you know, a little less open, a little, and perhaps, yeah, perhaps that didn't go down too well. But I think there were probably, you know, lots of factors. Probably, 
quite exhausted emotionally, perhaps as well as as well as physically. I mean, look, it was a golden goal against Turkey, right? I mean, that, that's a game that could easily have gone yeah. gone either way. I and mean, then they are in the semi-final. Um, Turkey were a pretty decent team, if not world-beating team at, at the time. It was no shame, I think, in losing to them. Um, I think to this day, some of these players probably feel that they should have beaten them. They should have gone that little bit further. Um, I think they're probably unlikely to have actually win it. But yeah, so sort of the image of Senegal going round. I mean, Adelaide Wade, who was who was president at the time, might well have not liked this idea of these, you know, happy, go lucky, crazy guys having a party in South Korea and Japan. But he was pretty keen to, you know, bask in their reflected glory when they came back to Dakar and you know meet the team travel through the centre of the town with them, was the entire population of Dakar turned out to, to, to welcome them. So he can't have been too upset about the image they portrayed. I think it does feel, I mean, this isn't really fair in Senegal, but it does feel like a missed opportunity. Mm. Um, been, well, still only three African teams have reached quarterfinals. And you think this was the one where actually they, they should have gone on. I mean, you know, Cameroon against England in, in 1990, actually... You could easily have won that game. Um, and Ghana, obviously, very nearly beat Uruguay. But England and Uruguay were better teams than Turkey were in 2002. Yeah. And also, I think 2002, for a whole number of reasons, I mean, the, 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 that was a tournament that began on the 31st of May. It started earlier than any, well, I think any previous World Cup study, any World Cups in my lifetime. The fact it was the first That's season... <laughs> yeah, not far off these days. Yeah, um, the the fact that it was the first season where you had the second group stage in the Champions League, saying a lot of players were tired. Um, you, we mentioned Zidane not being there. Pires was also injured. There's a couple of other high profile absentees. I mean, Beckham obviously had a, the whole metatarsal nonsense. Uh, not that I think England were really in with a with Shatter winning that one. Um, but there, there was an opportunity there for an outsider to really go. A long way. Well, as, you know, as Turkey did and, and, and South Korea did, mm. but that could have been Senegal. And you, you, you sort of sense now that it's sort of like Western Europe's being kicked into gear. That there's this sort of industrialization of the production of youth talent. That uh, you know, of the last sixteen semi-finalists in the World Cup, thirteen have been European. Mm. It now feels like a Western European tournament in a way that twenty years ago it felt like it was becoming decreasingly a Western European mm. tournament. So you do fear that. Africa's moment has passed, or, or the, you know, the rest of the world's moment has passed, and Senegal were the one who had the, the real chance. Mm. Yeah, well, we never know what Qatar could, could bring, but... Uh, Southgate's glory, on... Marcus, you know that. You... <laughs> yeah, well, beating Senegal in the final, maybe. That's one of the sort of but uh, well, one of them has to lose on penalties. Um, <laughs> what, what I would also... Um, like to thank the Senegal side for is is kickstarting the very strange phenomenon in the 21st century of all but one of the world champions being knocked out in the first <laughs> round of the following tournament. <laughs> it's such a not France 02, Brazil 06 are the only ones who have bucked the trend, but Italy 2010, Spain 2014, Germany 2018. So to me, that's their legacy. 
And I thank you for that <laughs> enormously. Um, but of course, it, they were the the side that put their country on the footballing map, James. And it's been uh, it's been fascinating talking to you um, about this team and uh, a, a very very uh, fond memory in the uh, in the annals of time with regards to the World Cup. So thanks very much for coming on um, to the greatest game. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. I loved it. Uh, for more stories like that, do check out theblizzard.co.uk, everybody. But Jonathan and myself will be back next week with another great game from the history of football. See you then. <laughs>